Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello, this is Richard Reich, host of the Defining Conservatism podcast. Today, we're talking with Carl Truman about his new Heritage Foundation report, Gender Ideology and the Future of the Human Person. Carl Truman is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He's the author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and also Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and sparked the sexual revolution. Carl Truman, glad to talk with you today. Great to be here, Richard. Thanks for having me on. Uh, thinking about your paper uh, for Heritage on gender ideology, you, you talk about this, um, well, I'd say, meta theory that is really dominating our politics, social order, debates, uh, causing incredible amounts of turmoil throughout our society and a lot of different institutions. And in the paper, you really unpack it, and I thought it would be good to walk through that analysis uh, to help us understand you know, what's going on in our country and to think about the challenges that we face in gender ideology and how we can think more clearly and more sharply uh, about it and, and contest it uh, philosophically. You, uh, you write about gender ideology um, as consisting of things like expressive individualism, uh, an instrumentalization of the human body, uh, demanding that other people recognize the performance of one's gender, and also gender and queer theory and cyborg feminism and transhumanism. So maybe as a, as a preliminary in thinking about all these components, gender ideology means what exactly? The gender ideology is really the theory that there's a distinction, we might say, between, between biological sex and gender. Now, there are some gender theorists who argue that, that even biology is a construct, uh, something that's invented. But essentially, you know, most of us grow up with a common sense understanding that there are men and there are women, and the distinction between them is a physiological one. It's rooted in a... Uh, uh, our hormones, it's re rooted in our physical constitution. Uh, gender theory, gender ideology is really the idea that no, actually the whole notion of what it means to be a man or to be a woman is not something that we can ground in some sort of objective physiological realm like that. It's really a social construct. It's something that emerges out of the expectations that society has of the ways certain people are meant to behave. So you know, when, when we talk about a man or a woman, we're not talking about biological functions so much as we are talking about expectations for how people should act. On this idea of gender, gender ideology, and you say it's a social construct, help us think about that, that idea too, that where does that come from? Is this, is this a Marxist concept? Is this something that comes out of uh, you know, post-colonial theorizing in the academy? Or Because I think a lot of people would say that about thinking about feminism. That's what feminists have always said. But what does that mean exactly? Yeah, well, I think at its heart, it, it, one of the things that makes gender ideology sort of attractive and plausible to a lot of people is it does capture something of the truth. 
you know, if you were to go to London or to uh, Seoul or Berlin or Rio de Janeiro or Beijing and New York, and you looked at how, you know, normative male and female behaviors and roles play out, you see distinct differences. I think we're all aware that how we understand masculinity and femininity, for want of better terms, in, in different cultural contexts is, you know, drawn to a large extent from the specific cultures in which those things occur. And that makes gender ideology kind of plausible. What I think a lot of people fail to understand, of course, is that gender ideology is not talking about those kind of differences in the way that I might say, well, a woman in New York thinks and behaves differently to a woman in Beijing. Uh, they're actually questioning the very category of what it means to be a woman. We're not talking about the accidental properties, if you like, of what it means to be a woman in different contexts, that some societies may expect women to stay at home, others would expect them to go out to work. We're not talking about those things. We're actually calling into question the fundamental significance, reality of, of any distinction between what we call men and women at all. On, on, on this, this power of gender ideology, you focus on that in your paper. Power meaning it's, it seems to uh, have hold of the imaginations of a lot of people, a lot of them very important people with a lot of power, cultural power, political power. Why is it so powerful. I mean, and if we think about, say, the early bathroom debates of, you know, 2015, 2016, when this really started, at least in terms of a political contest, it became very hard to say something so basic that we've always taken for granted that men go to the men's bathroom, women go to the women's bathroom, high school boys shouldn't go in the female high school girls' bathrooms. Why did, why, why did, where's that power coming from? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's no simple and straightforward answer to that. I think a number of things are in play. I mean, first of all, it strikes me as self-evident that the politicians debating this stuff, very few of them have actually read any kind of gender theory. You know, President Biden is fully behind the transgender movement. He talked about trans issues as being the, the human rights issue of our generation. Bet your bottom dollar. I bet you a, a pound to you know a penny to a pound. He's never read a word of gender theory. What's going on there? I think is the result of very very powerful lobbying over several decades. You know the human rights campaign, for example, is one of the most well funded lobby groups uh, in the United States at the moment. So there's a lot of pandering to lobby groups, pandering to the ballot box on this kind of front. Where the ordinary person, I think, is caught here is the fact that the rhetoric being used to justify transgender moves on bathrooms and that is, is rhetoric we all sympathize with and we've had deeply, you know, deeply embedded in our culture for a long time. Uh, individual human rights, the right to be happy, the right not to have other people interfere with our way of life. These are things that are valuable to, to many of us. What we don't have is a way of being able to counter that kind of rhetoric. And I'll use a personal example here on the trans issue. I got involved in this, I think, 2015, 2016, when I, I became aware through uh, the husband of, a, of one of the local school teachers that they were bringing transgender bathroom policies into my own local school district. And I wrote a letter to the school board and 
I had a friend, I don't do social media, but I had a friend posted on their Facebook page. And what shocked me was not that I got violent pushback on this letter. What shocked me was I, I got total indifference. The vast majority of people there in my school district didn't see that it was an issue. They didn't see that this was going to be a problem, that this was going to impact their daughter's bathrooms, their daughter's sporting events. Uh, and I think uh, the way I interpreted that was, you know, we're so, and in some ways rightly, attuned to individual rights uh, in the United States of America. We no longer have the vocabulary for pushing back against the crazy excesses of individual rights of which the transgender movement is one. And then finally, I would say it, it appeals directly to the, the therapeutic instincts of our age. Uh, we're taught that everybody has a right to be happy. Uh, and if I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, do I not have the right to live out my fantasy and have you indulge it if that's what's going to make me happy? It's hard for us to press back against that because all of our cultural intuitions point in the other direction. Yeah, I, I think also, um, just thinking about this descriptively, I mean, if, if we think about, you know, one step back, the gay rights movement itself said, well, if I have these same-sex attractions, that therefore constitutes my person, and that's who I am, writ large. And, and you must recognize me as this sexual being uh, defined as such. And that also seems to be playing out in a much more amplified form of the transgender, you know, claim that uh, I know I'm a man trapped in a woman's body and you need to recognize that. And if not, you will be fined, penalized, lose your job, etc. Because as you say in the paper, the outward performance isn't enough. It's the demand of conformity that matters. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things to say there. First of all, just a, one observation, of course, is that the, the T addition to the LGB is somewhat anomalous because it's not really a movement of sexual desire, but it does have this, this emphasis upon the psychological space that the L, the G, and the B do. Where it diverges from them, of course, is that by definition, it denies the significance of the physiology of the human body. So you have a, a gay man like Andrew Sullivan being decried as a transphobe because he is not sexually attracted to women pretending to be men. Uh, and so we, we're seeing within the LGBTQ movement uh, 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 fissures beginning to emerge, cracks beginning to emerge because the T actually denies that which is central to the L, the G and the B. And that's the importance of uh, human physiology. But certainly it's built on, on the back of the, the LGB uh, rights movement. And again, as you, as you rightly say, points towards this, uh, this psychological reality that is now, now this demand that we, we recognize that we're just heading into Pride Month when every street you walk down, every town in the US quite probably, will be a demand that you recognize the legitimacy of these identities. And that's, I think, where it gets very tricky for traditional conservatives and traditional Christians, because what's happening there is the, the terms of membership of civil society are beginning to move in a way that is antithetical to those who hold to a traditional view of what it means to be a human person. 
Uh, you talk about in the paper uh, expressive individualism uh, as also being a part of this movement, uh, as, as feeding into it and making it you know understandable to people, and, and why if someone says you're, you're you know you're denying my right to exist if you say I can't use this bathroom or something like that, that this all sort of feeds together. Maybe help us think through that more. Yeah, expressive individualism is really a, a, a view of the self, a view of what it means to be a human person, individual. It's emerged over the last four or five hundred years. And at the heart of expressive individualism is the idea that that which defines you are the feelings you have inside. And in order for you to be an authentic person, you need to be able to act outwardly. You need to be able to act publicly in accordance uh, with those feelings. Uh, and that's where, in some ways, where we get the, the notion of authenticity from. These days, we'll talk about authenticity as a key category of what it means to be a human person. And what we're saying there is somebody who acts outwardly that which they are inwardly. Uh, the problem, of course, with that is that the, the inner space becomes very plastic in the kind of world in which we live. I mean, imagine uh, two, three hundred years ago, your world was pretty fixed. Uh, you'd have been born, grown up, and died probably broadly within you know, a fairly restricted geographical area. The friends you had as a child would be the friends you had as an adult, would be the friends you'd have on the day of your death. An awful lot of your world would be fixed. That inner space, if you like, would have been profoundly informed by a relatively stable external environment. Today, none of that applies. Uh, we can move over vast spaces very quickly. We can be online and have stacks and stacks of friends we've never even met. All of the external markers that kept the inner space relatively stable have, have gone. And that, I think, changes our imagination. We start to imagine that, that we can be anything we want to be, if you like. The responsibility of deciding who we are resides with us or is grounded in our, in our inner feelings. And that's where something like transgenderism makes sense, if you like, because it's, it's the latest iteration of this pushing back against external authority in order to find my true identity. It's not the external authority of the community that's being pushed back against now, though. It's the external authority of my very own body that I'm starting to push against. We think about the human body in this conception. I mean, you've, you've talked about it some already. It, it sees the human body as an instrument, as something plastic, as something we experience reality with, uh, as, uh, you know, a device. But it's not, we, don't, we no longer think of ourselves as a body. That we are, that we are a body, and and I think that's a part of the even before all of this. I mean, that was what heterosexuals were saying during the sexual revolution. I think largely in terms of experimenting, and that's kind of the view that we adopted. And now we're here extending that logic even further. It seems. Yeah, I mean, if you read the amicus brief uh, in, of the professional female athletes in the United States in the the Dobbs case, the case that overturns uh, Roe v. Wade last year. What's interesting in the amicus brief is the way the women talk about their bodies. They don't talk about their bodies as if they're themselves. They talk about their bodies as, as tools or as instruments. It's a very graphic demonstration of this way of thinking about the body, that we think of our bodies now as an attachment to the real self. The real self is how I feel. The real self is what I think. 
My body is a tool that's attached to that, that allows me to realize it. And this, I think, is where transgenderism connects to the movement of transhumanism. Now, what is transhumanism? Transhumanism is uh, a movement, or it's a collection of movements committed in various ways to transcending the limits of the human body, whether it's beating mortality and trying to live forever, whether it's you know, trying to download your brain into a computer, whether it's fusing the human body with a machine. These are all forms of transhumanism. And transgenderism fits into that philosophy perfectly. And when you're thinking along those lines, how are you thinking about your body? You're thinking about your body, to some extent, as a lump of raw material that your will can impose itself upon, can transform in significant ways. I recommend to anyone listening to get hold of uh, Mary Harrington's new book, uh, Feminism Against Progress. She has this phrase there, uh, meet Lego Gnosticism. And she says, we're at a point now where our bodies have become meet Lego. Essentially, they're, you know, the flesh is just a set of building blocks that we can rearrange at will in order to transcend what we were born as, to be something else. And, and that grips the imagination and it makes things like transgenderism plausible. Uh, if we have hormones and we have surgeries that allow me to gerrymander the chemistry of my body and the physiology of my body so that I look like a woman, can I not claim to be a woman? Can I not actually be a woman at that point? It, it does seem, you know, that, you know, if you take the view that we are embodied, uh, that we're, we are uh, embodied creatures with a soul that you know, forms us and shapes us into who we are, that if we do violence to this body and we, we, we try to pull apart, the, literally are trying to pull apart the body and the soul, that's what we're doing, that there's going to be violent consequences. There, there's going to be uh, all manner of, uh, of untoward consequences. It seems those are starting to emerge as more and more people go through this process, particularly more and more young people. Do you see that happening also? And when, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that I, I'm, this is an odd way to put it, but I'm actually relatively optimistic on the matter of transgenderism, uh, because I do think in the long run, this is a high road to hell. And I think we will see, we will actually begin to see in the next 30, 40, 50 years, very significant lawsuits being brought by kids who are now adults, of course, whose parents did not protect them from the craziness of how they were feeling as, as young kids or kids going through puberty. I mean, just to put it in context, you know, uh, we don't allow, no, no state in the United States allows a child under the age of 18 to get a tattoo because we regard that as too significant a transformation of the body. But we are moving rapidly to a position where it's going to be normalized for children under the age of 18 to decide if they want to have children in 10, 20, 30 years time. That's crazy. Those kids will sue their parents in the future because what they experience as gender dysphoria is not cured by these kinds of physical transitions. So that's going to be a reality. And I think that we will see pushback because as you say, you know, nature's going to bite back at some point. What, what makes that optimism of mine somewhat tragic is that countless lives are going to be destroyed before we get to that point. And that's why I think we can't wait for that point. We need to be campaigning now to get to that point quickly. The quicker we get there, the less lives that are destroyed. But I think you're absolutely correct, Richard, that uh, 
you know, this butchering of the body will have a horrible cost attached to it. Yeah, it's, um, you know, just reasoning and, you know, let's, if you really play this logic out, right, it's, it's sort of this Dostoevsky-like position that, you know, in his famous novel, The Possessed, you know, we reached for perfect freedom and what we got in return was perfect despotism. Uh, as, one, as one of the characters' voices in that novel. And, you know, likewise, if this were to go on untrammeled, this this desire to abolish the body in the search of a perfect will to power, and, you know, M- you know Mary Harrington says it's meat Lego, I kind of think it's like Mr. Potato Head sexuality or, or th- uh, understanding of the person, ends with, I think, a, an incredible amount of control by government, corporations working together over the human person. I think that's where this ends and where it's already pointing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it's very clear that uh, the pharmaceutical industry has a huge financial investment in pressing uh, the trans issue. Uh, I, I think in just general political sphere, when you allow psychological identities to become normative and when you, you, you put the full force of law behind defending them, well, not everybody's psychological identity is compatible with everybody else's. You know, the conservative Christian, Jew or Muslim's identity is not compatible with the radical gay activist's identity. So somebody has to referee the shooting match. You know, there are going to be winners and losers here. Who's that going to be? It's, it's going to be uh, the governments, particularly when you have you know, in the sexual revolution, a dismantling of the mediating institutions that usually mitigate uh, the power of the individual and the power of the government. Uh, when, when the family, when, when the pre-political space that we used to be able to operate in is dismantled, you end up either with total ag- uh, anarchy or with some form of authoritarianism or totalitarianism. I don't think we can avoid those those sort of uh, scenarios at this particular point. Um, you talk in the paper about cyborg feminism realizing a moment here, or you know, helping to bring bring us along. I guess we've sort of been talking about that already, but maybe help us understand the link here. Yeah, cyborg feminism. It really emerges in the in the seventies and the eighties. I mean, two big names that we associated with it would be Shulamith Firestone and and Donna Haraway. Today, Sophie Lewis, I think the the English uh, feminist. Actually, I think she lives in Philadelphia now. Uh, is is a big advocate of it. And and cyborg feminism is really predicated on the idea that one can use technology to overcome what would be seen as, they would see as the problematic nature of of female physiology, which one might summarize as really as the the ability to have children. That's what it comes down to. Uh, These women really see that you cannot have true equality as they understand it between the sexes until one uh, overcomes the fact that only women can produce children and that society sees that as, as placing the women in particular peculiar positions of obligation towards those children. So, you know, the word cyborg, so it, summarize, it sums up pictures of, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator or something. It really just means uh, a form of feminism that allows, which sees technology as, as liberating women from the the bodily limitations of being a woman, i.e. fertility, primarily fertility. So the pill would be part of that um, 
IVF, surrogacy, these are things that would also be part of that. I mean, there's a sense in which the cyborg feminists have won the culture in a lot of ways because so many of these things that uh, Shulamith Firestone could only dream of in 1970 are now normal parts of our culture. And incidentally, these are the very things that make it difficult to answer that question, what is a woman? As soon as you decide that the female body is a problem, then the question of what is a woman becomes problematic. Because you know, if you ask me what is a woman, I'm going to say to you, a woman is somebody whose body is normatively tailored towards reproduction. That's not to say that a barren woman is not a woman, or a woman who never marries or has children is not a woman. But it is to say that normatively a woman is a woman whose body is tailored towards gestation and reproduction. Once you decide that gestation and reproduction are problems for women and not part of what it means to be a woman, it becomes difficult to define what a woman is because the definition I've given is an oppressive one. It doesn't allow women to be truly who they are. So there's also this, I mean, there's sort of a rejection of um, obligation, obviously, uh, but sort of the, the dependency that there are these sort of just unchosen aspects of human life and they're really defined by love. And that sort of can't be admitted as a part of or a natural part of human flourishing. Yeah, I think what comes through in, in a lot of the writing, not just on transgenderism, but uh, surrounding the sort of modern understanding of what the self is, is that the self is an independent entity and all relationships are contractual and all relationships are to be judged by whether they bring happiness to me or not. And that, I think, lies at the heart of, of what's going on. If you, if you read, uh, rec again, recommending to listeners, Carter Sneed's book, What Does It Mean to Be Human?, published, I think, about two years ago. What Carter Sneed does in that book is he points to the importance of understanding human beings as dependent and obliged. If you understand human beings as dependent and obliged, then so many of the things that we regard as a problem now cease to be problems. They become part of the dependencies and obligations that make us who we are. And so I think at the heart of a lot of, heart of the transgender issue is the problem of the modern self. And that is we bought into Rousseau's lie that man is born free and everywhere is in chains. And so all the aspects of what actually make us truly human become problematic at that point. I'm thinking, uh, you know, you also in this paper, you kind of close with a reflection on transhumanism as sort of like the end, like the transcendent end of all of this, perhaps. Uh, this in terms of this getting beyond the human body that we ourselves can become something other than human beings. That there's some sort of utopian quest involved here. Yes. I mean, one always hesitates these days to say, you know, this is the last move in the game because there always seems to be a further crazier move to come. It is hard to see beyond the, you know, what other external authorities are there beyond the human body? You know, if we, if we could break the authority of the human body, then what other external authority is left? Uh, I think it is, it is a utopian dream. Uh, you know, 
the dream of transcending who we are. And like all utopian dreams, I, I think it, it, it's doomed to become a nightmare. Uh, I say to the students in class quite often, I don't care who you identify as uh, in contradiction of your bodily constitution, but sooner or later, your body will have the last say. You're going to die. And you can identify as an alive person, but you're going to die. You can identify as immortal, but you will die. Uh, and I think this, this utopian quest, which is ultimately a quest for immortality, uh, physical immortality on our terms, is, is doomed to failure. I, I, something that always, when I first started thinking about this, it helped me, helped me understand the uh, scope of it is, you know, male and female, he created them. We, we know that. Two binaries, as we're told. Uh, but how many genders are there in gender ideology? I mean, do, I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, everybody jokes like Facebook has like 56 or last count had 56, but like, Really, how, how many genders could we, could we produce if we go through with this ideology all the way? Well, there's a reason why there's a plus sign at the end of the LGBTQIA, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in theory, if gender... Again, in the paper, there's a little bit of a bait and switch going on, I think, today with, with, the, with gender ideology and with transgenderism. But, but I would say in terms of classical gender theory, there could be as many genders as there are social performances. In other words, there could be as many genders as there are people on the face of the earth, in theory. Uh, uh, what's interesting, of course, is that uh, when you're talking about a child who has the body of a male, but they identify as a female, people are very confident about what that child means when he identifies as a female which oddly seems to point to a kind of a binary, a psychological binary, if you like, rather than a physiological binary. But there seems to be a strange essentialism that has crept back in. It's almost as if gender theory demolished the importance of the physical body for understanding gender. And then what Abigail Favale, the, the Catholic gender theorist, calls gender identity theory, has sort of crept in to say that actually the child who has a, a man's, a boy's body but claims to be a girl is pointing to something stable when he claims to be a girl. That there is a, a male-female binary out there. So when you ask how many genders there are, I'm inclined to say, depends who you ask and on what day you ask them. Uh, if it's somebody wanting to destroy the authority of the physical body, Countless genders. If it's somebody wanting to justify giving hormones and genitally mutilating a 13-year-old boy or girl, two genders. Carl Truman, thank you so much for joining us and discussing your heritage paper, Gender Ideology and the Future of the Human Person. It's been great talking to you. Great to talk to you, Richard. Richard.